Hey there, and welcome to Zero to One Humans, a podcast that tells stories of ordinary people who have made some extraordinary life choices. Join us as we talk to artists, travelers, writers, athletes, entrepreneurs, and just generally good people to find out the backstory of how they got going from zero to one. My name is Terence, and I am your host. At over 29,000 feet tall, Mount Everest is the world's highest mountain above sea level. More than 300 people have lost their lives scaling this mountain, and 2019 saw its deadliest season with 11 lives lost. Today, sit with us as Dr. Kumaran shares his experience conquering the mighty Everest. You'll learn about what scaling the mountain is like, the feeling at the top of the world, how he chose to take a year off for the endeavor, the life lessons he learned along the way, and what he eventually ended up doing at the foothills of the Himalayas to help the very people that first supported his Everest dream. Hey Kumaran, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, yeah, hi Terence. And before we get started, uh, do you want to take a minute to tell our listeners a bit more about who you are? My name is uh, Kumaran, I work in uh, Tan Tok Seng Hospital currently. I'm a senior uh, resident in orthopedic surgery and there's been a couple of disruptions at work uh, because of the COVID-19 but I'm hoping that all of it will be over and we can get back to normal life soon. Thank you for being a healthcare worker in these really hard times. I, I want to start our chat today by taking us right back to, to Everest. And I believe the road to the summit first starts at base camp and then climbers go from camp one to camp four and then finally to the summit. But before you can even get to camp one, you have to navigate this particularly challenging section. I believe it's called the Kumbu Icefall. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I read about this section, like even with all the safety precautions, it is extremely dangerous, there's shifting ice, there's deep crevices. Can you tell us a bit more about what it was like getting past the, the ice wall? Okay, so uh, the Kumbu Ice Fall is the, the massive chunk of glacier ice, moving ice, that is that is the biggest hurdle between Base Camp and Camp 1. And uh, historically, uh, many climbers could not start climbing Everest because they did not know how to navigate past the ice falls to even go to Camp 1 and begin the climb. So it's uh, a glacier that comes down from Everest and it breaks apart and uh, it, it flows down as the Kumbu Glacier down all the way down and becomes the river uh, at lower lowlands. So this glacier system is never static. It's always moving and every year the route is changes. So you'll have ice doctors highly uh, qualified Sherpas who find the route and they lay the ropes and the ladders and find a safe route from base camp to camp one and only after the ice doctors have laid this route is the expedition considered started because without them no one actually can navigate past the ice route so it's a very dangerous segment which uh, is as I say is very dynamic every day you hear creaks and, and collapses of ice and Every day, the route has to be maintained because uh, the ladders might go missing or fall into a crevasse or a big chunk of ice might have uh, crushed ropes and the route might have to be changed. So this can happen any time of the day. Hopefully, we are there in a short period of time and we minimize our, our exposure to danger. But most of the time, you can hear cracks and, and ice collapsing at the sides of the ice fall as you're walking itself. So it's, a, it's considered the most dangerous segment of climbing Everest. And have you, did you see any, when you were there, do you remember seeing any ladders falling off or ice falling? On, on yeah, people? yeah. In fact, it's it's kind of like 
a norm. <laughs> so <laughs> when you when I was there, uh, yes, a huge chunk of ice from the western side of western shoulder, it's called, broke off and it landed somewhere in the ice fall. And the drift that came apart, uh, the wind that came, we had all had to squat down to prevent ourselves from being blown into a crevasse or something like that. That happened once. And along the way, many times we have heard a lot of, smaller collapses but we don't know where it's going on so we are always on our toes and keeping a lookout for a danger and so i want to talk a little bit about and i read about this infamous death zone right i think it's around camp four is that is that right in, in everest yeah it's above uh, eight thousand meters and so this this at this zone there's, there's strong winds there's little to no oxygen and as you're climbing i believe you're walking past you know dead bodies of climbers who never made it back in the past did you feel any fear at all at that point of time yeah, so the dead bodies, I've read about them before I left. And, you know, being a doctor in Singapore, I thought that dead bodies won't phase me. and But I was uh, totally wrong because uh, when I was climbing, there were old dead bodies and there were fresh dead bodies. And the fresh dead bodies were lying right on the path that we are going up because they just had died a week before when the, the previous team's climbers tried climbing it. And so we had to navigate past the dead bodies because there's only one route up and down uh, the mountain from Camp 4. And, and these are people that you you, know, you may have seen along the way like a, a week yeah, ago. Yeah, they, they were probably in base camp at the same time as me. Uh, I, I might have bumped into them without knowing, you know. Yeah, But right. the reality of it was that I was trying to do something that they had tried to do the previous week and they had died doing it. It reminded me of my mortality. Unlike Singapore in the hospitals, where I'm a doctor, they are a patient and the patient dies, it's different because I'm doing my job. But here I am in the shoes of the guy who just died and it can happen to me. So that's a different perspective and that really got me uh, quite affected. Right. And I believe we're going to talk a little bit more about your emotions uh, through the climb. Finally, at the summit, I believe climbers, after spending, how many days is the summit from base camp to, to the top? In total? Each camp takes about one day. So if you want to go systematically and climb with adequate rest, it takes about four or five days to the summit and about one or two days back down to base camp. Right. And so you take four to five days to get to the summit. But when you're up there, you spend less than 15 to 20 minutes before you have to get back yeah. down again. And it's probably difficult to, to describe with words, but do you remember what was going through your mind back then at the top? It's a very common question I, I, I get asked because um, so everyone thinks that I'll be super happy and you know that's the most uh, elated moment of my life. Uh, but I, honestly, I was just too tired. I was so relieved that I was at the top and I was scared that you know I have, I have another section, uh, another whole segment, half only half the climb completed. So the other half was to get down safely. So I was scared about that, but I was just relieved that finally I made it. Too tired to think about anything. So I just had to do the photos and um, whatever I needed to do, flag photos, and maybe I had a speech for my family, and then I read out the recorded the speech. And then soon after that, Basecamp was uh, comsing me over the, the radio, asking me to come back as soon as possible because it's too dangerous to stay up there for too long. Because you don't know what's gonna the, the weather might change. Yeah, the weather can change, like yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I want to take a step back now and turn to the time before Everest. You just completed medical school, you were in debt, you, know, you had a bond to serve with the Ministry of Health, but you chose to quit your residency, go through all the red tape with the ministry and stop everything for a year to climb a mountain. Did people think you, you were crazy? Not only people, my friends and my family thought I was crazy as well. <laughs> yeah, I think 
no, not many people or maybe no one else before me as i know uh, who did something like that like immediately after med school took a year off and actually came back and 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 continued serving their bond so we have a five year bond which doesn't include housemanship the ministry is always afraid that people will break the bond when they go for all these long term uh, trips and they will you know not not pay off their bond or they'll just go off So that's the biggest hesitancy in giving me allowing me this one year of no pay leave and it was difficult to get because I had to get permission from here I had to ensure them that I will return I have to get guarantors to uh, to sign let them know that some financial yeah financial as well and I have to get yeah. some uh, credible doctors to actually tell that my characters of quality and I will actually come back you know so that was a hurdle the second one was convincing everyone else including myself that this was the right decision to make because it's very uncertain this whole thing is uncertain i have yeah and i mean your schoolmates were progressing into their medical careers you know there were expectations from your family and you just decided to hit the pause button yeah so it's it's quite challenging because you are the only one taking this uh, path otherwise you are in the program and um progr- my my program meaning the residency program and i was quite young and the program was orthopedic surgery and uh, I was in the transitional year so I was supposed to start the program the next year but uh, unfortunately they could not reserve a place for me to go for my trip and then come back and continue so I decided to stop a residency at that point of time because I thought that this opportunity won't come by or might not things might not be the same many years down the road when I have more responsibility so that was one big thing knowing that you know my there's going to be no pay my I'm going to be behind my my peers I might not actually get into residency the year after when I apply so there's a lot of uncertainties in the job itself and and furthermore there's a lot of uncertainties on a mountain I had no money I I uh, I just came out of uh, housemanship I had no sponsors and climbing mountains is uh, very expensive and uh, and there's no certainty that you'll reach the summit and it's very dangerous as well so there's no certainty that I'll come back as well <laughs> so yeah and and this sounds a little more of it but i'm aware that for certain mountains the climbers have to sign a body disposal elective form before submitting so in case you die on the mountain you you know they will know whether to leave you there cremate you or repatriate your body back home you know when you had to think through this what was your thought process when you faced this risk of death Yeah so this uh this interesting form uh, I had to get someone from uh, home to be a guarantor that uh, you know they'll pay for the repatriation fees if I elect to choose my body to be repatriated back to Singapore so initially I thought that you know they're just covering their backs and it's not so dangerous but as I climbed and the higher I climbed I realized that it really is dangerous and um, if a person actually dies there and they don't have all these forms filled out it gets very complicated firstly whether for the sherpas to actually risk their lives to to bring down a dead body which is absolutely no use at all and is risking their lives as well and after you bring down a dead body what you're going to do with it you know if you have no guarantor to fly back to your home country the, the company loses money so all these things have to be thought about and sorted before you actually go for the climb so it's it's yeah it is morbid but signing your own body repatriation form and asking my dad to whether he'll be my guarantor it's uh, it was quite morbid <laughs> how was that how did that conversation go so i was like uh, by the way you know uh, i have to sign this you know what do you, what would you like and then he was like of course get you back lah then he said don't worry that you know, options a b yeah. c yeah then he said don't i i was like assuring him don't worry you know they're just covering the backs it's not so dangerous you know just want to make sure but i realized along the way that it is pretty dangerous yeah 
Great. So tell us about Qumran as a young boy. It seems like you started out on what many might argue as a conventional path. You, you went to pretty good schools, you completed your medical degree. How did growing up in Singapore influence your decision to do something unconventional like submitting Everest? Uh, I was from a pretty traditional uh, family. Uh, both my parents are teachers. I mean, I, I was from Naval Base Primary School in Yishun. So not much exposure to the outdoors or many overseas trips. And I was quite protected, I would say. Yeah, only when I went to my secondary school in RI, I joined scouts. And scouting actually gave me a lot of insight into the outdoors. It, it exposed my mind. It, it, it expanded my pers- uh, perspectives and made me meet a lot of people, maybe go to places outside my comfort zone. So really, Scouts changed me as a person. The exposure that I got in Scouts definitely, I would say, helped me a lot in my national service as well as all the adventurous things that I started doing after secondary school. Uh, I was uh, I joined a sports CCA in, in JC and then I rock climbed in university. I traveled a lot after that and all these things started coming after the exposure that I got in Scouts. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about your decision-making process earlier in taking a year for the climb, but talk us through what it means to, to go from zero to one, both physically and mentally, in preparing for an Everest summit. How did you go about doing that? I think the, the thing that people always start off with is having the inspiration and dream. I think that's the most important thing that gets you going. Everyone gets inspired daily by people or things around them or incidents that happen and everything. But the key is to keep that inspiration going and keep that dream alive. Many times in our hectic society or with our jobs and our lack of time, the dream kind of fizzles out as you realize that you might not be able to make that dream a reality or might not be able to set aside time for that. But I think the biggest step from going to zero to one is taking the first baby step the smallest, tiniest step towards that goal. And that's the hardest thing because that uh, feeling of the immense momentum, inertia to actually start it off is the biggest thing, you know. And uh, and do you remember back then what, what was that moment, that baby step moment for you? So what inspired me was actually a, a friend of mine who was a PhD exchange student from Romania and she was in a rock climbing team as me. I little did I know that she was uh, one of the first female alpinists in uh, in Romania. And during one of her breaks, she actually took time off to go climbing in the Andes Mountains, alpine style. That means without any um, guides, porters, uh, all by herself with like ropes on a backpack with all the cooking utensils and all the equipment and guide, like mapping out the, the route by herself. When she posted the photos on uh, Flickr at that time, I was really inspired. I was like thinking if someone just like me could do something so extraordinary like climbing a mountain, which I only had read off or look, I mean, saw in documentaries on TV, I'm thinking maybe I could try it out. And that what was the thing that got me going. Then I started Googling a lot about mountains and I was uh, Googling what's the easiest, highest mountain to climb. And Google brought back uh, Kilimanjaro in uh, Africa. A bunch of us decided that why not and just try it out and see how it goes. But the step to actually go and climb was difficult because I have only three weeks of break in my medical uh, term because it's quite busy. And again, money was an issue. We just sacrificed our three weeks of holiday to go to Tanzania and we saved up, gave tuition, you know, did, just get money enough to just go to the, the and climb the mountain. That was the first step, I think, the first baby step that I ever took with a bunch of friends. Uh, when I was climbing, actually, I told myself that I will never do something so silly again because it was one of the most difficult 
things I've ever done in my life. And uh, you know, our previous episode, we spoke to to Yui, who was the first Asian woman to complete all all the United Nations countries in the world, and she talked a little bit about her climb at Kilimanjaro and saying that it was one of the most painful things she's done in her life. So. If, if this was the easiest mountain that Google told you, I'm not sure which other mountains are going to be different from that. Yeah, I realize there's no such thing as an easy mountain. It's your mind that needs to be tuned in to the fact that it's, there's no such thing as easy mountain. Once you have that mind tuned, I think it's easier. But even though, you know, up to now, even though I've climbed Everest and other mountains, I still think that Kili, Kilimanjaro was my hardest mountain <laughs> because I was not prepared. At all, mentally and physically. And, and again, what does preparing for the Everest Summit look like physically in Singapore? Because I know in, in places like Colorado, people have mountains they can go and practice on. In Singapore, how did you do it? Yeah, so there's nothing in Singapore, right? So uh, our nearest uh, mountain is probably uh, Kilabalu, uh, which is a flight away, or even some of the volcanoes in Indonesia. It's an expensive thing because you have to fly there, then you have to take a few days to reach the base camp, and another few days to climb and equipment-wise and come back. So it's it's the, the notion of climbing from a sea-level country like Singapore itself is like warped. Yeah, so if you decided to climb something outside of Singapore, then you have to train for it, and you have to do whatever, you have to use whatever resources we have in Singapore to do that. So we have our... Our skyscrapers, that's an asset to us. Yeah, a lot of them. And uh, some nowadays they're building the HDB flats uh, up to 40, 50 stories, you know. I used to go to Clementi, the new HDB flats, which are like 42 stories, and, and use that as my training. Carry backpacks, uh, ankle weights, and go up and down many times. That is one. Then we have our trusty old Bukitima Hill. We can always go do that. Then we have our long run, jungle tracks, and gyms. So this is how I... I, I used our resources and then tried. But that being said, any climber would say nothing, no training beats being at altitude. Because altitude itself, just being there itself is another ball game altogether. Because of the oxygen. Yeah, yeah the lack of oxygen. So no matter how fit you are in sea level, when you are at, ox- when you are at altitude, it's different. You will know that it's totally different. Yeah. Now, I, I thought we could spend some time talking about the concept of success and failure and I want to bring us back to to the mountain for a moment and I believe at some point in time you were climbing with a friend or someone who who turned away from his attempt after an avalanche because he said he wanted his kids to grow up with a father what are your thoughts around that and and how did you feel when when you saw him make that decision yes this uh, moment was on uh, Everest when um, we were on different climbing cycles so he was at camp one while we were at base camp and when he was climbing to Camp 2, there was an avalanche that came from the from Nupse, which is the mountain just next to Everest, kind of like swept uh, one of the uh, Sherpas into a av- uh, crevasse. I think he saw him getting injured, badly injured. And he realized that climbing isn't... Uh, it is very dangerous. And when he came back to base camp and told us a story, and he said that, you know, he's calling it quits, he's not going to climb because... Uh, he, he grew up with our father because father left him and he had two young children at that point. And he realized that if he died, you know, he didn't want his kids to grow up with our father and have the same experience as him. And he decided not to pursue the, the climb because what he, he was grateful for what he had seen. He had came to base camp, he had even gone to camp one, gone past the ice falls. He was very grateful to God to, for having allowed him to experience all this and he thought that was enough and he decided to pull, pull the plug. And would you consider that... Uh a failure in some sorts or actually in fact i think what he did was probably the most difficult decision but it it was 
probably the best decision for, for him. Failure and success is very personal. Everyone has their own definition of failure and success. And just because everyone else in the world would think that this guy chickened out and left and they would deem him as a failure, but they don't know the situation and circumstances. In fact, he had been a bigger failure for his entire family if he had not survived and his children did end up growing up without a father. So what he did was probably the biggest successful decision that he had ever made in his life. And no one else would know that because it's something personal. And, and if you were to think back to, to 2012 uh, at Everest, what, what were some life lessons that the mountain taught you that you still lean on today? <sighs> Everyone thinks of climbing Everest as the physical task of uh, climbing. But those who have climbed will know that climbing is a lot more than just the physique. It's a lot of emotional, mental, and, and even, in fact, even spiritual realms that you have to contemplate with and have to be strong at and and draw strength from different aspects of, of life. The mountains have has, has definitely lessened my ego. I've failed many times in summiting mountains. And um, before that, you know, every everything that you embark on, you, you, you think that by putting all that you've got, setting aside time, working hard at it, you'll actually achieve it. But the mountains has taught me that that's not always true in life and uh, has made me be able to accept things and move on or try different ways to circumvent the problem instead of just going straight and banging against the wall. It has taught me to go around the wall, go over the wall. And in life, this is very true because not every time you succeed and people feel like they don't want to move on or carry on with something else, which they might be more successful in if they actually pursued it. So it taught me how to get over failures. And another thing is that it taught me to be calm and realize that everything that happens back at home in, in work or in family or anything, it's, it's very small. The very fact that you are alive and you can make a difference subsequently means that things can change. But people sometimes are just too agitated or too aggravated with the situation and get too emotional about the current situation because they realize it's a big problem, it's a big thing, and they, they can't seem to look past it. So the mountains has taught me how small I am and how how small I am as a speck on the big scale of things. And if I disappear from the face of the world, nothing would change in the grand scheme of things in the universe. But yet, it's some the problems that I have is in my mind and so important and big to me. So it made me more calm when I, when I experienced life and death situations on a mountain when a big rock came sliding down and almost killed me. And when this ice that I was talking about crashed beside me. That you are so close to death every day. You are, you, are, you are juggling with it. And yet you have to have the calmness and the focus to carry on and go towards your goal. And if you lose that focus, you can easily get distracted and you can uh, slip off or you can put a wrong footing and you can, you can die. So when I come back to Singapore and, and carry on with my life, what seemed to be big problems previously now seem to be quite small. And I'm able to control my emotions and be more calm as things do arise at work. So I think these are two things, two big things that as the mountains have taught me. Right. Yeah. And I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the work that you continued doing in Nepal after the Everest experience, which, which I believe continues till today. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the community projects that you started? Okay, so how this uh, started was that when, uh, as I was climbing, started climbing back in 99, uh, sorry, uh, 2009, I went back to Nepal a couple of times and I realized that I love the mountains a lot. 
And the people that allowed me to go on the mountains and climb the mountains safely and come back were the Sherpas, who are indigenous uh, people near the Himalayas. They are like of Tibetan origin and they came down to uh, low-lying Nepal many generations ago. And without them, many climbers around the world would not be able to summit many of the Himalayan peaks. But yet, so little credit actually goes to them. And um, their resources on the ground is still quite basic. They don't have excellent medical facilities or, or education. And it's still, I mean, compared to places around Nepal or around the world, it's, it's, still, not, uh, it's still lacking. So I was thinking, why not give back in my small way to the community that allowed me to experience what I love to do, which was climbing. So I decided to put my passion of medicine and my passion of mountain together and, and give give back to the Sherpa community. So that's what started off the first project that I had when I was at Everest. Before climbing Everest, I, I refurbished clinic a health post into a clinic and I was the doctor there for a month. Then my wife, I mean, then she was my girlfriend, she came over and she kind of ran the clinic for another two months while I was climbing Everest. And then we came back and then we realized that that clinic was just a start to many more things to come. We realized that at that point of time, if we were there, we could treat the patients who had problems. And when we are not there... But when you left... Yeah, we didn't create a system for it to be sustainable. And we realized that we really wanted to go back and do something. But the opportunity never came until uh, the earthquake in Nepal in, in April. A lot of the Sherpa communities were affected. The, the mountain was closed that year. Uh, a lot of people died at base camp in Kathmandu, around Nepal. And some of the other people back, I mean, the epicenter of the earthquake in Gorkha had lost their homes and their lives. So I was thinking that, you know, some many of my friends have personally experienced this hardship there. So I had the opportunity to volunteer as a doctor through Mercy Relief and go and uh, help out in one of the hospitals as an orthopedic surgeon. So I was helping out the orthopedic surgeons operate on patients with fractures and acute uh, orthopedic injuries. That was the, the second part of going back to Nepal. And that kind of rekindled me to my, my friends. And I started hearing about their stories of how they lost their homes and some of their friends, I mean, their lives and all this. So I realized that we had to go back and help out. And at that time, it was the monsoon period was coming. These guys back in Gorkha, my friends in Gorkha, did not have any shelters to brave the monsoon because their homes had been destroyed. So I came back home and I decided to raise some money to at least provide them shelters to pass the June period for them to survive the monsoon. That was the second thing that happened. And, and then we realized that there's lots of things that could be done and needed to be done. At that same time, luckily... Someone from uh, LKC School of Medicine, one of the medical students, contacted me saying that they wanted to create an overseas community service project in Nepal. And I was thinking it's a perfect opportunity to make this project a sustainable one by, in, by incorporating the, the students and making them run their own project and me, me and my wife being supervisors for the project every year. Yeah, so we started... Uh, researching about things which are on the ground and about different scientific articles and all this about how to make uh, projects sustainable and realize that it's not about physically being there and running the clinic that is the main thing, but actually creating systems and letting the locals be uh, confident about their systems and augmenting their systems so that when we leave, they're very confident to actually carry on at a better level. So that is our, our project aim and plans to augment the local resources. So because yeah, with that, then year after year, we have been going with the medical students and uh, we have expanded the project to include uh, eye surgeon who does uh, cataract camps there now. And we have done maternal and neonatal uh, projects and uh, helping blind students, blind schools there and, and doing the cataract camps right now. So it's been going on for five years currently. Right. And, and what is your dream for these communities of Nepal? 
So uh, it's it's quite sad that uh, you know um, after so many years, Nepal just got its uh, constitution set up after eighty over years, you know, and only now you see it progressing a little bit. The last two or three years, and then the people in Nepal are so beautiful, they're so friendly, they're so happy, they're, they're so, so hospitable. Yet uh, the country is uh, in this kind of state where things don't function well. So my dream that one day. Nepal will be able to sustain and function independently without any foreign aid to a point where it surpasses the lab standards of its neighbouring com- countries. That's my ultimate goal. And hopefully by these small things that we are doing, it kind of augments their system strong enough so that we, when we leave that small community, they are functioning at a higher level. And slowly, if this many NGOs kind of help and not through money or not through their, their physical presence there, but actually the concept should be the other way around. By not giving them money and not being physically present is how you are going to help them. By imparting skills and education and systems improvement, and when you leave, they're actually better. So hopefully, slowly, things will change in Nepal. Going back to the concept of teaching a man how to fish rather than giving him yeah. fish. Exactly. And finally, to, to wrap us up, how can people get involved or support some of these projects that, that you guys are doing? We are, we are not an NGO. We are a small project. So we are always uh, looking out for funding and sponsors. So anyone who is, has the time or, or contacts or even physically want to donate some... And, and these can be uh, medical professionals or non-medical, non-medical as well. Because, yeah, we, we always concentrate on medical... The doctors, we always concentrate on medical things. But, you know, we need different perspectives from uh, leadership positions or from accountants, from engineers. Maybe uh, the school not only needs medical stuff to be taken care of, maybe they need a toilet to be constructed or well to be constructed or something like that, you know. So we're looking at holistic improvement projects. But currently, our, our capacity is only at the medical level. So people from different walks of life can give inputs regarding... The thoughts so no one needs to be a specialist or a particular profession to help out they just need the heart and the willingness to do something out of the comfort zone to actually make a big difference and people need to realize that so anyone can help out yeah but at the moment we, we don't have the resources so people can donate their time or their and any contributions are welcomed as well and uh, the ideas yeah and, and hopefully we can grow this project slowly yeah. and, and this project is called project uh, asha is that correct asha yeah Asha means uh, hope in uh, Nepali. And, and we'll be sure to include um, Dr. Kumaran's email in the show notes so that you can get in touch with him if you uh, can support these projects. So Kumaran, thanks for being with us today and being a healthcare worker in these very difficult times um, supporting the, the COVID crisis. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'd just like to uh, end off with a small note. Uh, so I'm, I'm after many years, after eight years of conception, I'm finally getting down to writing a book about my experiences throughout this uh, last 12 years, in fact. I, st- I thought of climbing Everest in 2008, and that was my Kilimanjaro climb as well. And after 12 years, I'm finally getting down to writing a book. So hopefully it'll be out by the end of the year or maybe early next year. So maybe you guys can look out for it. Yep. Yes, and we'll keep you accountable to publishing that <laughs> with that, with that <laughs> now timeline. That I've, now that I've said it, right? Now that you've said it. Um, all right. Thank you for, for joining us today, Kumaran. All right. Thank you very much, Darren, for your time. I'm happy. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for listening. I hope we can all find some inspiration from the people around us, just as Kumaran did to get his baby step going for reaching the summit of Everest. I am really touched by his idea of giving back to the very people that helped him out, and I hope we can all find some time amid our hectic lives to give back to one or two people that have touched our lives in either big or small ways. See you on the next episode of Zero to One Humans. Goodbye!